Not everyone can appreciate the sounds of the dead Kennedys, but then that's punk music for you. Strident, frenetic, and often angry. It's something that's supposed to be gut level and interesting, far more true to the original spirit of rock and roll than anything like ACDC or Men at Work. The it's Eagles. It's supposed to be upsetting and get under your skin to get people out of their... and anti-normality, shall we say. It's to get people out of their little apathetic shells and to get involved in what's going on around them, maybe, instead of just sit get, around at home. Get people out of their ruts by, you know, knocking them on the side. expressing themselves, Jello Biafra was taken to court a couple of years ago uh, for the album Frankenchrist by um, the Dead Kennedys. Well, what we're seeing here is uh, what I see as a false controversy. It's rap music and rock music is being cast as a Willie Horton poltergeist type figure in order to advance the agenda of the religious right backers of Tipper Gore's organization, the PMRC. In my case, I can relate to N.W.A.'s song about the police because after my record, Frankenchrist, was blasted by Susan Baker and the PMRC in Variety, two weeks later, nine police officers, three from L.A., six from San Francisco, broke a window by my front door, stormed into my house, tore the place apart like you'd see KGB people doing a, t a TV movie or something, went through my address book, page by page, comparing names, and while I sat there on a chair with a bathrobe on with two cops with their jackets zipped right up to about here so they might be packing a gun, circling around me like sharks. It was a subtle form of rape in a way. And Sorry, Tipper Gore, but music is not leading people to drugs. It leads people away from drugs. Older, still gratitated towards the hard stuff. Born to be wild by Steppenwolf comes out. Yeah, I'm there. Then came Led Zeppelin. They got on the radio. Black Sabbath, Paranoid. Yes, yes, yes. Why do I have to wait through 45 minutes of the Eagles and the wannabe Eagles? Because Colorado was a national testing ground for that species of horrible band. Horrible. Jesus, man, could you change the channel? Fuck you, man. If you don't like my fucking music, get your own fucking cab. I had a really Stop rough... Stop up to the side and kick your ass out. Man, come on. I had a rough night, and I hate the fucking Eagles, man. Made me that much lonelier, because my other friends got into Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and Yes at the same time. And to me, Yes is still maybe the worst band ever. You know, there's that, like the bottom six of just horribleness, and Yes is at the very bottom. You know, Yes, the Grateful Dead, the Eagles, the Bee Gees, the Beach Boys, although I respect Brian Wilson and all that, and most of that stuff except Good Vibration I can't stand. At least they had one good song. One candidate who took his campaign to the streets today in a way that only he can. Jello Biafra, the lead singer in the punk rock group The Dead Kennedys, he held a news conference at City Hall. He then went on to uh, do what he calls shaking babies and kissing hands. He also went on a whistle. Uh, that, not yet. <laughs> that we can't create, not with all the money the Defense Department can buy. 
At any rate, what we should do is erect statues of Dan White at convenient locations throughout the city and let the Parks Department sell eggs, rocks, and tomatoes to throw at them. All right. Well, welcome to episode 11 of the Cultural Futures Exchange. This one's entitled Plastic Surgery Disasters. And the topic is, of course, the Dead Kennedys. If you recognize the voice that you heard many uh, clips in the beginning of the show is uh, Jello Biafra, the lead singer and front person of the, the Dead Kennedys. So anyway, welcome. Uh, my welcome. name is Jeff. That's Slip. I'm Slip. Yeah, it's it's funny. There's no problem finding clips of him. You know, if there's one thing he can do, it's talk. Yeah. And you, it's really easy to find <laughs> clips of Jello Biafra pontificating on just about everything uh, under the sun. Anything you um, can and, imagine. Right. And we should we should note that, uh, you know, this episode's going to have stuff about politics. So if you're not into hearing about that and uh, how it relates to today, maybe you should skip this one or, you know, uh, fast forward because because you can't really talk about this band without talking about politics. I mean, it's down to the name of the band. You know, it's they're, they're a very political band and you have to, t you know, you have to address that elephant in the room. And so much of what Jello is about is political related in various right. ways. So, yeah, here's your warning if you don't want to hear about that or, you know, you can skip the parts or skip this episode. Um, but we will touch on it, although we're not going to dwell on a lot of the politics stuff, but there's certainly elements of it. Um, reminder of the CFX a conceit here. So this is the place where we examine different elements of cultural ephemera, music, movies, TV, stage, uh, toys, whatever it is we can think of, dive into the time that they came out and talk about that, the history, um, what's happened since then. And then most importantly, what we think is going to happen in the future in terms of a kind of uh, stock exchange valuation, whether you should uh, go long, the value will go up, go short, the value will go down or, or stay neutral. And there's not a real stock exchange where you can buy this stuff, although maybe in the world of NFTs and all that shit, there's something here for that, but uh, not yet as far as we're aware of. Uh, maybe we'll we'll think about that going forward too. So anyway, uh, just I think, hang in I there, think I, we should say too that Jello would be absolutely mortified and repulsed by what we're doing here with this stock exchange metaphor, I'm sure. Well, that's okay. I'm horrified and repulsed <laughs> yeah. by his take on yes, which is not the worst. <laughs> oh, yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, One so, of my favorite, uh, favorite bands, as we'll discover in a future episode, I'm sure at some point. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And, and his comments on the Beach Boys couldn't be more wrong either, by the way. So, uh, well, at least and, at least he likes some of it. You know, at least he knows that, you know, the the that Brian is great. But uh, yeah, I, I, we've already had, you know, done an episode on them. And so, you know, where we stand there. Exactly. Exactly. So, all right. So this episode is about uh, the album Plastic Surgery Disasters and the Dead Kennedy. So, so why don't you take us away here and talking about uh, the time that this came out, the zeitgeist, punk in general, the Dead Kennedys, and how we got to this album here in, in 1982 and three. Yeah, so so first, usually we do this thing we call setting the zeitgeist, and then we go more into the history of the albums, uh, you know, or the band specifically. Obviously, the zeitgeist here is punk rock, right? And it's political punk rock. So you had the Sex Pistols, right, coming out with uh, Nevermind the Bullocks. And, you know, obviously, this was a very politically charged album. You have, uh, we'll probably talk a little bit more about some of the songs of the Sex Pistols in particular that I think really influenced uh, Jello and the band. 
Um, but obviously, you know, even Jello has said one of the biggest influences was the Ramones. The Ramones pretty much influenced everybody. And, the, and kind of the humor that, uh, you know, the Dead Kennedys had was very influenced by the Ramones as well. Um, and you had The Clash, obviously. The Clash was a very political band. Um, and, you know, bands like Crass, which is kind of a more obscure band, but they were actually really anarchists. Like, you know, you always see the anarchist A in punk rock, but it's kind of symbolic. But this band was actually, you know, they were actually real anarchists. <laughs> you know? yeah. So so you had these bands that were overtly political coming out of the UK, and then you had the New York scene as well. And then you also had um, the San Francisco scene, which was smaller at the time, but you had bands like Crime, which was one of the first, I think Crime was the, one of the first bands in the United States to release a punk album or a punk single in 1976. So, you know, that was the, that was the environment uh, that we're talking about here. And of course, you know, uh, we kind of bandied this about this whole disco sucks thing. Cause we talked about that before uh, in another episode, but um you know, really, that wasn't part of this. Disco Sucks kind of happened later. That was kind of in 1981. I'm sure the Dead Kennedys were, you know, the the hedonic culture of disco was, was um, you know, ripe for parody from someone like Jello Biafra. And there was definitely that element, but I don't think that was as much a driver as just generally the, the kind of dinosaur rock uh, that punk rallied against, right? Like, you know, John, John Lydon, for instance, Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols, famously uh, was introduced to Malcolm McLaren when he was wearing a, sh- a Pink Floyd shirt that he had wrote, written, I hate above, customize <laughs> <laughs> the shirt. So, you know, that was kind of the, you know, uh, you know, this whole, pro- you know, these big progressive rock bands. And of course you heard at the, the quote at the beginning about Yes and the Beach Boys and the Eagles, right? The mainstream, they were definitely rallying against this. Um, and corporate rock, right? These bands like Journey and Sticks were around. And so this was a definite reaction to that. Um, and then, you know, there was just this whole DIY culture around the time, right? Of uh, People were publishing fanzines. It was these, these these scenes rising up organically. And and the San Francisco scene included, you know, not only crime, but, you know, the, the another great band called Flipper, which was a totally different kind of band. They were much slower. And then you had you know, the DC scene with minor threat and these bands coming out that were playing faster. And, and you had this whole thing of hardcore punk, um, that was coming out and that was mainly an American phenomenon. And the dead Kennedys were one of the groundbreakers of that. They, they might even have been the first hardcore band, really, uh, if you think about it. So I, I think that was kind of the zeitgeist. Um, what about you know, when the- you had the, so what about you were mentioning kind of the political aspects of the Sex Pistols and kind of the class warfare um, really in England at that time that they're reacting yeah, to? Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. You had the whole, um, you know, kind of rise of Margaret Thatcher and the, the conservatives in England. And you had a lot of the economic problems at the time that were resulting in these massive strikes and massive, uh, you know, layoffs and stuff. So this was all happening in England at the time that very influenced, you know, the political bent of the bands. Um, I, yeah, I'm not sure if that's you wanted yeah. to elaborate on that. Well, that was one kind of strain of the punk stuff. But another, I just wanted to touch on the um, anti-corporate rock kind of thing. There seemed to me, at least, in a lot of my understanding of it, that a lot of the punks were 
sort of aghast at how a lot of the rebellion that rock music represented, especially early on at the time that it was rebellious in the 50s and 60s and stuff like that as it was emerging, that that had been sort of weeded out of the, you know, the scene, right? And maybe the Eagles and groups like that were sort of the antithesis of that rebellious, you know, kind of punky thing. And that a lot of these big corporate stadium rock bands were just, they just weren't rock anymore. They were just something else. And a lot of the punks really missed that, you know, more rebellious anti-establishment streak that was completely missing for the, from the, in their kind of terms, like a watered down sort of rock thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And I think the other thing they, you know, a lot of the, you know, these bands at the time were, you know, especially the progressive rock bands were making songs that were like 30 minutes long and they wanted to get back to the early, you know, kind of urgency of early rock and roll where it was just like two minute songs, you know, much shorter, much punchier um, and faster and louder and simpler. Right. Even though, you know, I'm going to argue for the Dead Kennedys being kind of one of the more musically inclined of these bands. You know, obviously there was this whole aesthetic of punk rock that anybody could do it. And it, you know, you didn't have to have you, you know, be a master class musician of, you know, the caliber of someone like Chris Squire or Steve Howe or Bill Bruford, you know, or even Rush in these bands, you know, they, they were kind of things were, things were much more about the message and the urgency of the music than, you know, the technical prowess. Right. of the musicians. It was something that anyone could do. And, you know, it was much more democratizing. But I also think we have to talk about some other things that surrounded the Dead Kennedys that I think aren't really part of punk rock. And one of those is the satire aspect. And I think, um, you know, even though, you know, this wasn't part of the movement or the zeitgeist, it was definitely an influence. And I, I have to call out Frank Zappa, and I'm going to talk more about him because he's very similar and he also plays a big role in the later part of the dead Kennedys. When we talk about the app, the, some of the later part of the history with the Frankenchrist lawsuit, he was like a mentor to Jello, um, you know, during that whole thing. And he was also kind of an iconoclastic and contrarian uh, type figure. You know, he, he was part of the counterculture in the sixties, but he consistently lampooned the hippies and counterculture. Right. And you definitely see that kind of hippie, anti-hippie uh aspect to the dead kennedys very much you know it's a big thing and we'll talk more about that in our evals and our history and stuff um and so uh you know uh and then there were other as far as the music goes the influences are kind of interesting because you hear you know obviously they were influenced directly by the ramones and the sex pistols but you also hear this kind of surf music in you know east bay rays playing you know, it yeah. very it sounds a lot like like Miserloo from Dick Dale. You know, it's very that kind of heavier side of the darker side of the surf sound. You also hear like 60s garage punk and maybe even a little rockabilly there. And then, um, you know, uh, East Bay Ray also mentioned he was very influenced by really early Pink Floyd. So the Sid Barrett stuff, like if you listen to Interstellar Overdrive, you can kind of hear that same sound in some of these some of these echoey uh, guitar parts of the Dead Kennedys. It seems like a very unlikely influence. Piper and of at course, the Gates of Dawn era stuff. Yeah, exactly. So the yeah. more kind of psych, the more kind of garage psych Pink Floyd, less of the kind of, you know, more ornate and and uh, heavily produced stuff you'd see on Dark Side of the Moon and stuff like Metal, uh, or even Wish You Were Here even, which, which are much more, you know, what they were kind of against. But that early raw Pink Floyd was definitely an influence. And then 
you know, obviously the Stooges loom very large. You know, Jello talks about his record collecting and how he got found the Stooges and 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 then also Black Sabbath, Blue Oyster Cult, you know, some of the some of the kind of more heavier <clears throat> and darker early 70s bands. And then even uh, you know, the guitar, it, again, that surf sound, uh East Bay Ray has said he doesn't really credit the surf sound directly, but he was really into Ennio Morricone's soundtracks for Spaghetti Westerns, which are, of course, influenced by the surf sound. You know, there's that kind of, you know, uh, Western guitar you hear in in those soundtracks and in the James Bond soundtrack. And that's what he said he was mainly influenced by. So those those that's kind of the zeitgeist. Um, I think we should go a little bit into the, you know, just the history of the band leading up to this album and maybe a little bit after. So, uh, yeah, you want to, shall we no, do that? I, I, yeah, go, go for it. Yep. Okay. So, yeah, you know, so Jello Biafra, uh, was born Eric Reed Butcher. That's his real name. Um, and you know, we should talk about his name a little bit. So Jello obviously is Jello, you know, but Biafra refers to this country that had a very short-lived existence in the late 60s. It was basically an African country that had separated from Nigeria and uh, had lasted about three years. And about two years of that, and this kind of leads you to the darker political nature kind of of, of the of the band and, and Jello's concepts, is that Biafra, you know, they had gotten independence from Nigeria, but then the Nigerian army had invaded and caused this famine that killed like two million people. And so that's kind of, that's the where he gets his name, you know? So this is a very politically astute guy. You know, he was even saying when he was young, he was obsessed with the Kennedy assassination and his parents encouraged him to, you know, kind of study politics and stuff. So he, he was very uh, wise as to world events and current events and stuff. And, and he will hear that in the lyrics. Uh, yeah. And, and sort of the, the amalgamation of, you know, a very, kind of gross in a way, mass-produced pro uh, product like Jell-O, right? Which yeah. Is, you know, this kind of sugar, artificially colored thing, mass-produced food-related item. And then, you know, obviously, maybe in a way, the antithesis of that is like a, a proxy for, for mass starvation and poverty and, and you, know, pover you know, just economic devastation and war devastation. And stuff like that. So, kind of jamming those two things together. Yeah, that's a is, really good uh, observation. Kind of his thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's absurd, but also it gets a message, very clear message across of where he's coming from, just in that name. So, uh, you know, the band was actually started by East Bay Ray, whose real name is Ray Pepperell, and he was playing in blues bands and stuff at the time. But he went to a show at this club called the Mabuhay Gardens, and he saw a ska show. And Mabuhay Gardens was where a lot of these punk bands played. Um, you know, they're uh, basically, um, Mabuhay Gardens was this Filipino restaurant that was a club and that had been turned into a punk club. And um, so they had seen, a, he had seen a show there and he put this ad out looking for other band members. And that's how he got, Klaus Fluoride, the bassist, to join, and that's how he got Jello to join. They met, they formed the band, um, and of course, we have to talk about the band name because I, you know, we talk about. I think we were talking about some other band name being so good, like Cheap Trick. I don't really think any band name beats this band name <laughs> as far as being the greatest band name of all time. Hard to I argue think this, with that. Yeah, yeah, I think this might be the one. 
And they talk about, you know, East Bay Ray talks about, oh, it was because of, you know, the dreams that died with the Kennedys. And, you know, we respected the Kennedys so much because the name was considered so offensive. I remember there was one, uh, I think this was in 1980, they were playing a show on the anniversary, the November 22nd, the anniversary of the assassination. And Herb Cain actually wrote in his column how offensive that was and terrible that was. So the band kind of reacted by saying, oh, yeah, this was our respect for the Kennedys and the dream that died with them. But there's no doubt that this is tied in with the assassinations and the whole conspiracy theory of the assassinations. And and it's just such a powerful name. I mean, really. I, I think it's my favorite band name of all time because it really just says so much and it captures so much about the band and the name more than maybe any other band name. And it, you can't think of any more anything more in your face in punk rock than that name. Well, um, one of the one of the things about um, Dead Kennedys is, and, and I'll talk about it a little bit, a little bit later, but they're uh, posters, band posters for shows and stuff like that. And they had one that um, a friend of mine, uh, Craig, had, and I'll, I'll get into that in a minute, but it was Dead Kennedy's show, and it had the famous picture of, like, the JFK autopsy uh, oh, photo, wow. like, on the on it with, like, you know, the like a bullet hole kind of thing, and it, it, was, it was actually pretty disturbing, and it was as in your face as you could get, Dead Kennedy, and there was a Dead Kennedy, like, right on yeah, the right. Uh, poster, so, yeah. So, uh, you know, and then they came up with their famous logo, um, which is just the DK, which is iconic. I mean, perfect as Jello said, he wanted a logo that people could just graffiti, right? And people could put on their skateboard or whatever. And it's this kind of angular, uh, uh, kind of three-dimensional D and K. I mean, everyone has seen it, you know, I'm sure. It's so iconic. Um, and that was also a brilliant move. And then they formed their own record label and they were one of the first of these punk bands to do this. There, there was also, you know, obviously Discord out of DC and SST out of LA. That was a very, it was all part of the DIY aesthetic. So there were band, these local kind of scenes forming their own record labels and running their own business. And Alternative Tentacles was the name that the, the band formed, you know, the record label they, they created to release their own stuff. And they released other bands on there as well later. And that's still around. Uh, Alternative Tentacles still puts out records today. Um, and their first single was California Uberalis, which I think we'll talk more about. Uh, but that was the, um, you know, kind of, I think it, that song really captures the idiosyncratic nature of Jello's satire, right? So you would think he would be satirizing the far right, but he's actually satirizing the left. And it's funny because when I think of this song, I think of this could have been a Republican campaign ad against Jerry Brown. I mean, it kind of captures the same paranoia you see with the right and the left. It, you know, your your kids are going to meditate in school and we're going to make you wear earth shoes and stuff. <laughs> you know, it's 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 like kind of a, a Nazi, uh, you know, anthem for the left. And it's it's so strange to be attacking someone as progressive as Jerry Brown. But that's just the nature of Jello, you know. All it, it, everyone's a fair target here, you know. That's that's kind of what we're saying. And and the single, you know, I think it's one of the greatest first singles of any band. I mean, it really is uh, just a brilliant song. And um, you know, they released that, and it was also released in England. So they had a lot of their early stuff released in England. And you mentioned the covers when they released the single "Kill the Poor," the British. Uh, you know, label that was releasing these for them in England actually made 
the single cover have a bunch of famous right wing politicians on it, and they were actually sued and had to had to cancel the cover. They had to change the cover because these politicians were there, you know, all smiling with the words "kill the poor" <laughs> on the single. <laughs> so, so this was that, that was this you know similar to what you mentioned with the dead Kennedy. I mean, they were very provocative. Um, and then they released "Holiday in Cambodia," which I think is my I think is their best song ever. And that song was very influenced by "Holidays in the Sun" by the Sex Pistols. So, "Holidays in the Sun," where John Lydon is singing about wanting to go over the Berlin Wall to East Germany and relive the concentration camps, you know, like try to go to the new Belzen, you know, Belzen, Bergen Belzen, one of the uh, most infamous concentration camps. So it's this kind of absurd, like, um, you know, uh, commentary. And I think Holiday in Cambodia is very thematically similar, right? Um, Kind of mocking a young college student's angst by saying, okay, well, if you think life is so bad, let's send you to the Khmer Rouge and see how you feel there. And this Khmer Rouge was not something a lot of people knew about at the time, you know, the massacre that had happened. So it was, you know, again, it shows how informed Jello was on the issues and on, you know, different current events around the world. And again, this, these songs like were so innovative. I mean, Holiday in Cambodia, we'll talk more about the kind of dark, gothic tone of these songs, because I think on plastic surgery disasters, it's even more fully realized. You know, uh, it's almost, you know, we'll talk about the album in particular and its influences. But this this song is so gothic. It's almost like a goth punk song uh, with its very minor uh, chords and um it was what some of the first hardcore punk too. It was the, these songs were faster than the British punk you would have heard at the time. Um, and then of course they released their first album, uh, fresh fruit for rotting vegetables, total, uh, classic debut. One of the greatest punk rock debuts of all time. Um, which also included their excellent cover of Viva Las Vegas. One of my favorite cover versions ever. Um, and, and, you know, they 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 also had a single that came out after that called Too Drunk to Fuck. And <laughs> in England, it was just called Too Drunk, like when the announcers would announce it, because I mean, they were getting really popular in underground radio and the beep, you know, like they they were worried they were going to have to say it on top of the pops because the singles were actually doing well in England. And the top of the pops host was worried, like, how am I going to say this song too drunk? So they just called it Too Drunk. Because they didn't want to say it. Um, And then uh, they came out with an EP called In God We Trust after that, uh, which had another controversial cover, which was a bunch of back to a background. You know, there's a background of dollar signs and then there's this golden Jesus cross. You know, basically our God is money. Um, And then they came out with Plastic Surgery Disasters. Uh, which was, um, you know, released in, in 82 and it was produced by Tom Wilson, who was, who, um, you know, he had this weird career. He was this engineer. Um, and, uh, you know, he had, he had engineered shit like seals and crofts and stuff, yeah. you know, in the early seventies, but Summer then breeze. he, yeah, exactly. It couldn't be more different than this album. I mean, this album is fresh fruit. I, I think probably I would argue is the stronger album overall song for song, but sound wise, this album is so in your face. I mean, it's so tinny and loud and abrasive and it's just more punk in a way. It's more, it's 
definitely heavier. And I think um, Jello even mentioned that's what they were going for. They wanted to, it to assault your ears. And you get that when you uh, will play some of the clips from the album later and you'll hear that, you know, and I, it's so and it's kind of heavier and bigger sounding. And uh, this guy, Tom Wilson, would later produce, uh, you know, bands like T- TSOL, DOA and Social Distortion. So he was, you know, definitely moved on from Seals and Crofts. Um, and then, uh, you know, Jello had said the main musical influences. I mentioned that gothic thing and he mentioned one of the main in- influences was Bauhaus, which is interesting to me because Bauhaus was contemporaneous. It wasn't like they came before the Dead Kennedys. They were around at the same time. But you can hear some of the, the guitars um, and even that kind of holiday in Cambodia guitar reminds me of that gothic rock like Bauhaus. You know, you can hear that influence. Um, and then he also mentioned the Groundhogs, which were like kind of this early 70s heavy rock band, pretty obscure, you know, not not a real popular band. So that goes back to Jello's, uh, you know, avid record collecting um, that he was doing as a younger person. And Les Baxter, which... That's interesting to me because, you know, Les Baxter is one of these exotica artists from the 50s that, you know, really wouldn't get a lot of attention until the 90s. I mean, that's when me and my cousin were collecting records and we were collecting all this Martin Denny and Les Baxter and, you know, buying thrift shop clothes and all that in the 90s. But guys like Jello were listening to this stuff back in the 70s. Um, So it was really interesting how kind of on top of various kinds of music this band was. You know, they were academics. They were intellectuals in a way. Um, and again, I mentioned it, It you know, it builds on that gothic sound. Now, the album cover, we should talk about that. We, let's talk about the album covers in general, because I think the album covers of this band are incredible. I mean, the first band, Fresh Fruit for the first album, Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables, is basically a picture of police cars on fire. It's a photograph that was taken during the riots after... Um, you know, we mentioned at the beginning, we had a clip of Jello's mayoral campaign speech as he was talking about Dan White. Um, this uh, Dan White, um, you know, was the uh, one of the uh, San Francisco supervisors who had murdered Harvey Milk and Mayor Moscone. And um, when he basically went to trial and did this, th- you know, he had this thing called the Twinkie defense. He was eating too many, too much junk food. And that was supposedly what caused him to, uh, you know, murder these two in cold blood. And he got a very light sentence. And this caused, uh, you know, San Francisco's to basically riot. And they set police cars on fire. And that was the photo that was used for fresh fruit for rotting vegetables. Um, and, and rioting uh, forms a lot of the basis for many songs, you know, that the Dead Kennedys, cover, you know, go on to do on, on this album and others as well, right? Yeah, we'll talk about Riot uh, yeah. later, which is an incredible uh, song. And, you know, we'll also talk about how Jello's Biafra, Jello Biafra's lyrics often still resonate today. Um, you know, not a lot has changed in some ways. Um, and, you know, the album, but the album cover for... Uh, for plastic surgery disasters, um, you know, is this photo called Hands by photojournalist Michael Wells. And it's basically the hand, uh, a white person's hand being held by a uh, a Ugandan child, like a starving child. And that kind of goes back to the Biafra name. And we'll talk more about that in detail, uh, you know, the covers and stuff like that. But um, we should also mention that around this time, actually before this album, but after Fresh Fruit, uh, Jello ran for mayor. So after Mayor Moscone was murdered, there was, 
you know, a mayoral campaign, you know, obviously Dianne Feinstein had taken over temporarily. And then there was a mayoral campaign that she ended up winning. But Jello ran against her. And we had a clip of him at the beginning of the of the show, as I mentioned, that kind of shows his campaign was really kind of more symbolic and more of a chance, almost like performance art. You know, I mean, some of his platform positions were like no cars within the city limits, <laughs> uh, you know, open, allow, uh, you know, people to squat in, you know, buildings that were uh there for tax write-offs, et cetera, for properties that were tax write-offs. I mean, and, you know, this whole thing of erect statues of Dan White around the city and give people eggs and tomatoes to throw at them. I mean, it was obviously not serious. Cops um, had to but, dress as clowns, I think. That was right. Yeah, 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 exactly. It was just, it was kind of an absurdist performance art piece, really. Um, you know, uh, but it got the band a lot of publicity and attention. Um, and then, you know, obviously they built up some popularity and they kept releasing great albums. You know, I don't think this band listening to their discography, you know, almost all of the albums are about as good as each other. I give Fresh Fruit a little more points just for having a couple of those iconic songs. But Plastic Surgery Disasters, we'll talk more. Jeff will talk more about why we selected this album in particular. But I think, um, you know, all their albums are really strong and they kept recording and obviously one of the most famous things that happened is they released an album called Frankenchrist. And there was a poster that came in the album that was a, uh, uh, basically a work of art by the famous artist, H.R. Giger, who we know from alien and, you know, many other, uh, things, just a brilliant artist. Obviously I love Emerson, Lake and Palmer. We know that Jello doesn't, but they do have in common the fact that H.R. Giger did the cut a cover art for plastic, uh, for brain salad surgery one of uh, the iconic Emerson, Lake and Palmer albums. So it's kind of ironic they would share that. But Penis Landscape is a very explicit work of art. And um, they were sued for uh, obscenity. And uh, they were acquitted in a hung jury. But also during this time, the PMRC was, you know, they were on the on the hit list of the PMRC, right? Um, Tipper Gore. <laughs> Uh, you know, you heard that clip from Oprah at the beginning where Jello is talking about police. I don't know if I believe that story about nine cops coming in and uh, he, him calling it some kind of form of rape. I don't know what happened there. But at any rate, Jello, you know, obviously he is a, you know, someone who can definitely command the spotlight. And he decided to start doing spoken word. And that's how I first became familiar with him, really. I mean, not really. I'd heard of the Dead Kennedys. I knew them, but I really became a fan of his spoken word. And, you know, we'll talk more about that a lot because both of us uh, were a fan of his spoken word. Um, and then what happened is the band broke breaks up. They released an album called Bedtime for Democracy, another amazing title. Um, that was their final album. And they had broken up. But then what happened is Jello kind of took over alternative tentacles and started releasing other things. And, you know, the Dead Kennedys would obviously get royalties. And there was this whole royalty mix up that was an accounting error. But the band was upset. The rest of the band was upset for Jello because he kind of knew about it and really didn't tell them, supposedly. So there was this whole lawsuit where the where the other Dead Kennedys got all the rights to the back catalog and the name. So Jello didn't get those, even though they were on our alternative tentacles originally. They moved to, a, I think they're released by a different record label now. And there was this whole bitterness and breakup and 
you know, later Jello would accuse uh, the dead Kennedys of like kind of being sellouts. He, 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 there was a rumor that they were going to use a cell holiday in Cambodia to Levi's. Now don't ask me what Levi's would want with that particular song and how that would play into a commercial. That would be really funny, but the other band denies it, but you know, he's long criticized them. Uh, you know, in 2021 with the Capitol riots, they had tweeted some favorable tweet about Mitt Romney because Mitt Romney was, you know, uh, one of the people who wanted to impeach Trump for that. And Jello criticized them for praising Mitt Romney. And there was this whole back and forth. So they basically hate each other. And the Dead Kennedys have gone on to kind of become an oldies act touring with these different singers. Uh, and they they still play around now. Uh, but they haven't really recorded any new songs or new material. Uh, Jello went on to play in many different bands. Uh, one was called Lard that was with ex-members of Ministry. Uh, he now has a, a band called the Guantanamo School of Medicine. Um, you know, <laughs> another uh, which another is great band name. Another great band name, right? Yeah. Um, and he's gone on to still make music and still do his kind of spoken word and, you know... Um, that's basically it. And, and he, you know, he actually, um, uh, there's a famous dead Kennedy song called Nazi Nazi punks fuck off. Um, and he changed it to Nazi Trump's fuck off, uh, you know, and he now sings at those lyrics. So that kind of lends you, gives you an idea of where he is politically to this day. Um, but that's, you know, that's probably a, as good of a history as we're going to get here. So maybe we should move on to our personal histories. Um, yeah. So, so what? Well, you're on I'll go first because mine's going to yeah. be shorter. Mine's going to be okay. shorter. So, so you know, I remember hearing about them when I was a kid. You know, these, you know, punk was around, and as a kid, I remember hearing about the Dead Kennedys, and all these punk bands just scared the shit out of me. It was kind of like when <laughs> I first saw Iron Maiden run to the hills with all their yeah. leather and shit. I mean, part of me was attracted to the power of the music, but part of me was just like, these guys are scary. Yeah. You know, this is this is devil music, you know, because I grew up in Orange County. So I hadn't still had a little bit of that Christian you know, Orange County is like born against central. You know, we had teachers that were Christians and, you know, there was all this. And so the dead Kennedys to me were vaguely satanic. And, you know, um, when I was younger, I, I tended to stick with things like Journey and even ACDC, which is ironic, considering that they were Antichrist devil's child. They were less scary to me. Um and I remember when I was a kid, when I was in eighth grade, I was kind of getting old for Halloween, but my friend Dale it come, came and visited me. He, I he used to be friends with him when I was really young and, he, you know, I had moved. And when I was in junior high, he came and visited and we decided to be, be punkers for Halloween. And I remember <laughs> writing all these logos. I did the adamant strap across my eyes, like the stripe. I did the stripe across my eyes and I dyed my hair and... And we had these ripped up T-shirts and we wrote like anarchy and all these. And DK was one of the things I wrote. I had no idea that Adam Ant wasn't punk. To me, it was all punk. Right. And, um, you know, so I wrote like the pretenders, you know, which is, which is kind of punk, but not really. Right. So I kind of like really the police were punk, right? Yeah, exactly. The yeah. police. Yeah. Uh, and then I had this cousin, Cindy, who was a punker. She basically had shaved her head and. She really loved this band called the Dickies, you know, and I remember, uh, you know, she showing me the cover of the Dickies and saying, oh, these guys are so hot. They weren't hot. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't no. hot looking guys. But but at any rate, I remember that. And then um, 
you know, I started getting into classic rock when I was in high school and I, and I kind of was really into Rolling Stone and kind of the mainstream of classic rock and the mainstream of rock. So to me, you know, the stuff that was really happening in the eighties was stuff like Peter Gabriel, which, you know, of course I still like that now, but you know, I wasn't, I didn't think that punk was relevant anymore. I always bought into the Rolling Stone narrative that punk kind of burned out with the end of the clash. And, you know, I liked the clash. They were one of the first punk bands I liked. Um, but you know, I liked like London Calling, which if you listen to London Calling, there's very little punk no, about London it's Calling. Like it's really more. <laughs> a, it's like reggae pop. You know, yeah. it's like a it's like a pop album. The songs are really catchy and melodic and they're political, but they're not like what the Dead Kennedys were doing mm -hmm. at all. So I totally ignored all the stuff that was going on. I mean, I'd heard of Black Flag and the Dead Kennedys, but to me, it was irrelevant. Like it was just like, oh, punk is dead, you know, but obviously it wasn't, you know, there was like bands like the Minutemen, Husker Du, uh, the Dead Kennedys, Black Flag that were making this incredible music. And I would only get into it really in college. Um, but I remember in high school, me and my friends discovered, you know, we used to go to Tower Records and rent video. Tower Records had this video, great video store, and they had this cult section. So we'd rent like Russ Meyer movies and all these, you know, cult movies. And we found this movie called Erg, A Music War. And it was a movie that was produced by uh, Miles Copeland, Stuart Copeland's brother, who was the guy who ran uh, Island Records. And um, it had all these bands on it. It was just like an anthology film. It was a concert film where they'd show one band after another. And it, a lot of it was punk rock, but they had stuff like The Police were in it. Uh, and there were other bands like uh, Devo, I think, has a segment. The Go-Go's. It's yeah. a really awesome movie. I would totally watch. I've seen it a few times back in the in the day, but I would totally see it again. But the Dead Kennedys were on there. So I remember seeing them and kind of being really kind of blown away by their performance because Jello was just so crazy on stage, you know, with this weird kind of high-pitched singing. Um, and his little dancing around. He had these green gloves that he used to wear that yeah. were like... His, uh, he has a very weird stagecraft, I have to say, but anyway. And then, of course, I remember, I think, hearing of California Uberales at some point um, and thinking it was hilarious and just really clever. Um, but then it was really only in college when I heard about Jello. And I remember um, Mike V, our friend who starred in our Nirvana episode, uh, the DJ <laughs> who couldn't figure out how to use a fake ID. <laughs> Uh, he had he had spoken word stuff of Jello, so he had like the No More Cocoons album. I, I forget the other albums that were out, and I remember hearing that and just being completely blown away by it. I thought this was just incredible, um, and I remember seeing him uh, during one of the summers. Me and uh, one of my friends went to my one of my a couple of my friends went to Long Beach State, and I remember he came to Long Beach State uh, and did a show there in, in one of the auditoriums. And I remember seeing him. It's funny. I remember seeing, uh, one of my other high school friends I hadn't seen for a few years there. And ironically, that guy, I would stayed in touch with him. He's a total Trumper. So we'll talk more about that. <laughs> um, nice. you know, obviously he was into jello, but he's also into Trump. Um, but, uh, he would be later. And, and then I remember you having plastic surgery disasters. I remember he was either on cassette or CD, and I, I remember CD listening to it in the, the car. Early CDs yeah. I got, yeah. Yeah. So we'll talk more about your side of things. And then, of course, I remember I've seen him around town. I mean, I live in San Francisco now and I, I've seen him several times. I went to a show, uh, you know, I think in the late 90s to see this band Chrome. They were another kind of early um, punk band of San Francisco. They weren't really punk, they were kind of more post punk, more experimental shit. Um, 
And I remember seeing them and I remember with my friend Aaron and Aaron was kind of watching them. I'm all, you know, Jello Biafra is standing right be- behind you, you know, and he was freaked out because he was a huge Dead Kennedys fan. Um, but I've seen him around town a lot. And I remember seeing him in the 90s a lot. Um, and uh, I remember in 2008, I went to this like kind of Obama fundraiser at this dance club called 1015 Folsom. And it was kind of a half dance party. Half There were some there were in one room. There were like kind of punk bands in another room there was like techno music and dance and 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 then in between the techno jello came on stage and did this whole rant and it was funny because um it was completely tone deaf i mean jello is like he's run for the green party he's very left and he was already saying shit about obama uh that no one wanted to fucking hear you know, these people had been through eight years of Bush and the Iraq war, and here we have the chance to elect the first black president. No one was receptive to his message. He completely bombed, like all his jokes and stuff. It turned out he was right about a lot of things uh, that would happen. Uh, but, you know, no one wanted to fucking hear it. So that was kind of the impression before the show that I had of Jello before I went back and listened again and did my research was that last <laughs> time where he's like, going he's it's like lefty my wife always says it's lefty versus leftier um and uh he was leftier and no one wanted to hear it at that time because we were all like come on dude you know we're not going to vote for cynthia mckinney i mean you know we (laughs) we had eight years of bush we got this guy hope and change and all that and it just didn't go over well so that's my that's my uh personal history with jello as it stands up until now and i'll go into more in my evaluation what I think of now, but, um, that's where I'll leave it. Yeah. For, for me, the dead Kennedys were much earlier on, uh, my friend Craig, uh, who I, you know, met early on in junior high, uh, was really into the dead Kennedys and punk in general, and really was the first person that I knew who really was. He, um, was into all the punk stuff around that time, Dead Kennedys, and he was into the Cramps and and DRI and Black Flag and Circle Jerks. When Butthole Surfers came out, he was really into them. I remember him having early stuff of theirs, um, including their first EP, I think, which was uh, Cream Corn from the Socket of Davis. Yeah, I have all those records because of Barb. Yeah. My wife is super into them, so I have all those those EPs and records in our collection. he yeah. and I thought that was the funniest fucking thing ever, like the Buffalo oh, yeah. Surfer's name. And and Cream Corn from the Socket of Davis in particular was hilarious. I still think it's funny. And when you know that it was supposed to be having to do with uh, Sammy Davis Jr.'s I Socket. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, we got to do an episode. We got to do a Butthole Surfer's episode later yeah. because there's, there's some amazing shit the, that they did. Yeah, the, really they're is so true. innovative. They were really so... Is- And they didn't really fit any genre, but I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but they kind of were their own thing. They They weren't really punk. They were like something else entirely. Um, But it was was the humor of that. And and he had all over his bedroom walls, like these punk posters, those black and white kind of fanzine, you know, punk posters. And they were great. And the art was incredible. And it really fascinated me because I'd never really seen anything like it uh, before including he had the um, that autopsy photo of the dead Kennedys right. that I mentioned. Um, and again, the idea of the name of Jell Biafra and, and all that was, you know, kind of interesting. Um, at the time, I was absolutely like a hard rock and metal guy. Like I, I 
was not into punk. He played me a lot of the stuff that he was into. Um, and to me, it just sounded like shitty musicians playing shitty music. Like I, I wasn't into it. Like this, it wasn't my thing. Does you know, two minute songs of people screaming and just making a lot of noise. I was like, no, thank you. This is, I don't know what this is, but this isn't what I'm into. But then he played me the dead Kennedys. And I just remember thinking, wait a minute, this is different. Like it immediately struck me as being different. The aesthetic of the album covers were different. The lyrics, which we'll get much more into in a minute very different. And I was into them from the beginning, um, where other uh, punk things, I just was not um, at all. Uh, and even other groups like, uh, you know, that were around before the Dead Kennedys, obviously, like the uh, Ramones. I like the Ramones. You know, Craig was really into the Ramones, really, really. Into I, the Ramones. I really like the Ramones a lot. And I, I should have mentioned them. And, you know, I should have mentioned the Ramones and I should have mentioned uh, X. Yeah. X was another band. They were X was probably the first punk band I was really into. But even but X and the Clash and the Ramones were they to me they weren't as scary. And X was so much like the you know they they're so much like the Doors in a way, like the punk Doors um, that I was really into them. So I should have mentioned that too. Yeah. I mean, I like the Ramones. I, I've never really been that into them. But, you know, Craig was really into them, so I heard them a lot. They were funny, and I liked them, and I liked that they looked really weird and all that. Yeah. The the Clash, I liked a bit. I still do. They're not my favorite group in the world. I respect them. I, I think they did some interesting things. When we kind of went through our, like, music critic, musical critic phases and stuff like that, and, you know, all those Clash right. albums... Being at the top of all those, you know, greatest album ever list, I, I kind of get it, but it's just, it's just not, I does they never resonated with me, to be honest. And I had older, um, uh, you know, my, my older cousins and my friends who had older siblings who were kind of like post rock, uh, we've talked about in prior episodes, were all into The Clash. So I heard The Clash plenty and I was just like, yeah, whatever. Iggy Pop that everybody mentions as an influence obviously was hugely influential to a lot of the punks and an important figure in, in the history of that genre and music. Not, I'm still not a fan. You know, I, mm -hmm. I get why he is, is a central figure as he is, but his music, this is not really my thing and that's okay. Um, I do remember Decline of Western Civilization, part one, which is a very, very different thing than part two, which undoubtedly we'll get to at a future episode. Oh, we episode. have to get to part two. But yeah. part one, I agree. I remember that too. I think I saw part one after I saw part two. I actually saw part two in the theater. Okay, um, in the mid-80s, yeah. Uh, and I've seen part two probably about 10 times, or yeah. it's one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, but part one is, you know, it's more about the L.A. punk scene. Right. Um, but yeah, that's definitely... Uh, yeah, I should have mentioned that too because I remember seeing that, or you know, in my la later part of I think it was in college I saw that. But anyway, go on. I I might have seen that earlier on. I don't. I did mm -hmm. not see it in the theater. I might have seen an early VHS of it, um, probably that Craig had, you know, because he was into all that. I I don't remember a lot about it other than the band Fear, which I love. Oh yeah. Um, and oh yeah. I just thought they were funny for the most part. Like I like living in a city where he talks about like the bugs crawling on his balls and like yeah, uh, yeah. beef bologna was a song that I thought was hilarious. And, and Lee Ving, obviously his yeah. name is funny, but him, uh, Mr. Body, right. From clue. Uh, he, uh, he was funny and you know, he was a goof 
at that yeah. time. And I thought that was pretty funny and hilarious. And, and I, I still do. When I would get into listening to the Dead Kennedys, Jello's sort of warbly vocals and the, the album covers you were talking about, the poster art, the whole vibe I liked. And for whatever reason, the artwork, I think, was just as compelling to me as anything else. And I was really into Mad Magazine and National Lampoon stuff at that time. And the artwork, and it was really underground comics that I was just beginning to get into a little bit, you know, and and that sort of style um, of art was, it just resonated with me. I was like, wow, this is really right. cool. The subversive nature of it was like, 10 degrees beyond what anything that you would see um, in certainly anything in Mad Magazine, which is pretty innocuous, right? Um, National Lampoon had darker stuff, um, but it was a little more sophisticated, you know, I, stuff that I ambitioned towards maybe and didn't quite understand. And again, uh, Craig was really into National Lampoon stuff too. So that was something that we had in common in Mad, of course, as well, and Weird Al and all that stuff, which he would go on to star in a Weird Al video, which we're going to talk about at Got to talk about it some other time. Um, but the uh, really the the other thing um, that was just a big part of that were the lyrics. The lyrics were oh, yeah. just amazing to me and a revelation to me because most of the music that I was listening to at that time was stuff like Run to the Hills and was stuff like The Trooper, where it was like kind of these war fantasy, you know, right. DC stuff and the... Dead Kennedy's lyrics were just like these sardonic, clever, subversive, funny, um, sarcastic, uh, yeah. you know, ironic, right? You know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, and say super, something? super clever. Yeah, super clever. And, and, uh, yeah, I think the, the, obviously we have to talk about the lyrics more. Um, but that, yeah, I could see, I didn't even think about the tie in with Mad Magazine and Spy Magazine and the satire. Uh, you know, it's it's all coming from that same place. So if you're into comedy, then he's really Jello Biafra is really funny, you know. Yeah. And and we were like that those early kind of satire things, you know, and I say things because it wasn't just the magazines. It was like, you know, sick and twisted festival animation and all that kind of stuff. And we, that was our that was our deal. Right. You know, junior high school boys. That was like the height of of culture for us. Um, can't say I really outgrew that either, but um, it, it's still really funny. And the, the other part of the Dead Kennedys, which was interesting to me, was really around the, you know, the lyrical content being um, more of a uh, attacking the middle class, uh, really looking at, um, you know, the middle class ethos, uh, why it was maybe not something that you should just accept um, wholeheartedly. Maybe it's something that you should think about. Maybe these are some of the things that you should examine a little more critically. Um, the uh, Maybe the tyranny of growing up in the uh, safe suburbs and all that stuff. And again, this wasn't necessarily anything um, new or different. And there are other bands who were um, definitely covering this uh, topic and even pretty straightforward things like uh, uh, subdivisions from Rush and things like that. So all those uh, political angle uh, topics were really influential to me. Um, honestly, and just educating me and getting me thinking about stuff in a different way than perhaps I ever uh, would have, right? Which is, um, I would say, precisely 
the point of what they were uh, trying to do. So um, obviously that continued with Jello's uh, spoken word stuff in, in later years. And again, the lyrics, we were just talking about how they were, you know, witty and subversive and sardonic and ironic and, you know, all that stuff. And, and to me, and this is going to sound like the most bizarre thing to people, but to me, there's a direct line between that and their lyrics and even lyrics like Steely Dan, right, where their music couldn't be more antithetical I think Jello just threw up, dude. Yeah, I think well, he just you, threw Jello. up when he heard that. <laughs> uh, because, but I mean, yeah. it's the same sort of idea of tackling difficult, interesting topics in a weird and subversive way. Jello and the Dead Kennedys were much more over the top. But yeah. Steely Dan would do stuff like that song. I was, came comes to mind. You're talking about, you know, Trump, but like Chain Lightning, which right. is a, is about like a Nazi rally or something along those lines, right? And it's done in a kind of like weird, subversive, you know, com, uh, comedic almost way. And so, it, the music has nothing to do with each other, you know, in that regard. But the lyrics in in that kind of subversive, ironic, sarcastic, sort of all those sort of uh, things was very appealing to me um, always. And, and the Dead Kennedys were, were definitely that. Um, lastly, I would say that, um, you know, the, the punk folks, they, while they do have a point about the corporate rock stuff and being sellouts and, you know, rock of the late 70s and the dinosaur rock not really being rock and roll and not being rebellious and all that. And, you know, as far as like Steely Dan and stuff goes as an example, okay, maybe spending two years recording Gaucho and making it like this perfect album and studio perfection and all that stuff that people goof on is not rock and roll in the two minute song recorded in half an hour thing, but it's a different thing. They're not, you can have different things, different aspects, different flavors, different sort of slices of all this. And they're very different things to me. And I, I, yeah. It doesn't make sense to me that they are so angry about that in a way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I I I mean at the time though, I think it was that you know, they they just kind of maybe maybe that music lost some of its edge and they were you know, it's just a new generation. This happens again and again, right? I mean, it's like you know, that's just a natural, you know, teenagers rebel against their parents as part of yeah. growing up. And I think I think that's the thing. And I think with punk rock, it was just a way of revitalizing something they saw that was lost. And, you know, looking back, you could, you could like both things, you know, I obviously do, you know, right. so, and you do too. So yep. it's like, there's a place for, as you say, it's a different thing and there's a place for both. And, and, um, you know, I like, I love Steely Dan and, and I love Yes and I love the Beach Boys and I also like the Eagles. Yep. And so, you know, I see a place for all of this stuff. Um, you know, and I'm glad it's all there. You know, so, uh, yeah, I get your your point. And I, and I do think that they were a little disingenuous about it, I have to say, because they're they're jealous bitches. Right. Because the Clash, they love everyone loved the Clash. But when the Clash made it and they actually became kind of rock stars, rock stars, they were resented for it, you know, for yeah. being successful and for no other reason that they were doing what they did well and people liked it. That's kind of lame to me. You know, I, I don't think they ever really acted like rock stars, um, although all those punks would disagree. But well, it's also musically the class changed, you know, yeah. so basically their first album is very raw. You know, it's a classic. But then right off the get right off 
out of the gate. You know, they they started doing more commercial stuff and more poppy stuff, and they also started exploring other genres. They were already doing reggae a bit, but they also got into early hip hop and you know uh, world music and stuff. And they were and dub dub reggae as well. And they you know made a double album and then a triple album. And you know it, but it's like yeah, I think they were more interested in just kind of exploring different stuff. It was almost like a Beatles-like thing where they wanted to expand and go beyond. And, and you know, a lot of the purists, the, the irony of, of punk being shattering all conventions, yet having this sort of purity test and having, oh, well, you're not really punk unless you follow these rules. Right. That's the least punk rock thing ever, right? So I there agree. is a lot of contradictions. There's definitely contradictory stuff there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of punk cred is about being poor, disaffected, unsuccessful, and underappreciated. Yeah. And that's kind of the purity test. Well, that that's a lame purity test, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah. So anyway. So let's jump into let's just jump into your eval. Cause I think, you know, you you're gonna touch on some things that I will just chime in on, and then I have a few things to add, basically. Um, so let's do it that way. So why don't you take it away? Yeah, you were talking about the album cover of Plastic Surgery Disasters, and it's disturbing, it's provocative. Um, Jello mentioned in some interview that people thought it was a play on the movie E.T. because... That's the, hilarious. Yeah. That is I, hilarious. And, he, and I was like, wow, really? Yeah. I, like, I never thought that. I immediately, when I saw that, understood what that yeah, was Yeah, you knew about. what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I mean, that's how dumb Americans are, I just have to say. I completely believe that people thought that. Um, a lot of the themes in this album and Dead Kennedys in general, we touched on a little bit, but it's sort of like distrust of the system and anyone, any kind of authority, uh, position of authority, a lot of, uh, middle-class ethos subject to ridicule. That's an ongoing theme that we'll, we'll talk about, which is, I think really overdone and, and sort of stupid. And I'll get into that. Um, kind of a lot of themes about, you know, kind of rich Illuminati like figures pulling all the. Strings of society, you know, that sort of proto-conspiracy stuff. Um, I, I do think, though, that um, a lot of the kind of like, well, rich people are evil, poor people, noble poor kind of thing. Um, I don't actually, not only do I not agree with that, I think it's silly. Um, and I think it's silly because um, what a lot of people don't really acknowledge is that most people... And it's just a humanity thing. Put their really their motivation is to preserve their own self interest, right? And rich people try to preserve the self interest, but they're not different in it. Everybody does, and that's kind of how um, humanity is. And then sort of the evil of people in authority. Like I got news for you, Jello. Like that is sort of baked into humanity in general, right? And like. One of the most disturbing things ever was this thing you may be familiar with called the Stanford Prison Experiment, which was done in the early 70s um, and at Stanford University. And the idea there's all these experiments. There's another famous one, this Milgram experiment stuff, this the shocking, uh, the fake shocking of people and getting people to shock other people. There's all these compliance experiments done after World War II. There's this whole uh, cottage industry of psychology experiments really meant to design how really, you know, this one group of people yeah, mass murdered another group of people, yeah. right? How did this happen? How did the Holocaust happen? How did everyday people turn into murders? And like, was it something special, uh, especially, uh, you know, in, you know, 
you know, Stalin, Russia was uh, obviously uh, Germany and, and things like that. And so there are all these experiments designed to really, you know, tease that out as it were. And Stanford Prison Experiment was one of these. And basically, if you're not familiar with it, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's related, is they essentially just got you know, students to play the role in a prison of, of the convicts and the guards. And they were sort of like randomly selected and treated as such that they were either prisoner or guards. And they took on a lot of the sort of dynamics and power and um, abusive um, behaviors and stuff like that of the roles that they were taking on. And it was bizarre. And, and the people, and it's today hailed as one of the most unethical experiments ever because there's a lot of people who are really um, mentally disturbed by being in it and, and right. adversely affected and wanted to stop it and they wouldn't let them stop it. And it's, it was actually used as a, you know, it was kind of an anti-pattern of how you conduct um, ethical uh, experiments. But putting all that aside, it was really fascinating. And just regular people took on a lot of the, you know, negative sort of authority figure uh, behavioral things. So I bring this up because I think, you know, a lot of Joe's railing against, you know, uh, you know, the rich and people in control and people in power and political leaders and them being especially evil. You know, I just don't think it's true. I think it's people are acting their own self-interest to preserve their own power and their own, you know, sort of position in life. And that, sorry, that's just kind of how it is, right? Yeah, you know, there's another experiment that's really interesting, too, where they had, a, you know, three people who were in on the experiment and they'd bring one person to test and they would show them this graphic that had these various lines of various heights. And what would happen is the, the people in on the experiment would shoot. They, they would say, which which line is the highest? Right. And it was very obvious, which is one. And they would choose the wrong one. And at first the person who was being tested would disagree with them. But right. as they did it more and more, they would they would actually side with the group. So, so you know, we look at our tribalism today and all this stuff, and it appears to be just human nature, it right? Is. To actually conform, even though you know which line is the, is the right one, you're actually, you'd rather agree with your tribe. So there must be something in our inner ape, you know, that that, that had some purpose for. Or, you mentioned the Stanford prison experiment. There must be something in our inner ape that when we get in a position of power, we're going to abuse it. And so I think, uh, you know, it's really interesting we talk about this because my view of these things was a lot more like Jell-O's, uh, even though I, I, you know, I still agree with him on a lot, you know, and I still think some of the stuff they point out was real. You know, we'll, we'll talk about a song called I Am The Owl later um, that talks about the whole, cons you know, it's kind of a, a catch-all of CIA lore you know, as it were, right. and all these theories. And it's like, some of those things did happen. Some of them are true. But then, you know, it gets to the point where you kind of get into this conspiracy or contrarian mindset. I guess I'll talk about that more later. We should probably move on to uh, what your next talk, you wanted to get into some of the songs, right? Yeah. So against that backdrop, we have the, a lot of the lyrics of this album on plastic surgery disasters, right? So it opens up with this uh, voice of Christmas past government flu song. And I'm not going to, I don't have a clip for this one. I'm not going to read all the lyrics, but the, basically it's like a lot of the themes are you went to school, you were taught to be fearful and obey and cheerful and fit in. And if you didn't, you were weird. And, you know, you should just trust people, people in authority. 
and live a happy, pain-free life. And that's what you're supposed to aspire to. And this is what's in the TV commercials. And, you know, if, if that doesn't happen, there's something wrong with you and you're somehow defective. So that kind of kicks off the album. There's songs on there like uh, Winnebago Warrior, which I'm going to play a little clip of right now, and then I'll talk about the lyrics. so catchy too that's the thing you got to remember about their songs i mean this is your bit but i just want to chime in with how memorable these melodies are and jello he did write a lot of them he was not musical right he didn't have any musical training but what he would do is he would actually hum the melodies and stuff and i think he's definitely talented there these songs are instantly memorable um when you hear them and they're funny obviously yeah i mean this was a funny one and and John Wayne famously was sort of a super right wing guy. John Birch right. Society, Orange County, you yeah. know, denizen and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Anyway, the Winnebago Warrior, the lyrics are really a, a lot about kind of, you know, weird approaches to environmentalism and just sort of the American fascination with maybe exploiting nature in really unfortunate ways. The line you heard was 30 gallons to the mile for an RV, like slowly belching smoke going up into the mountains. Um, and, you know, the absurdity of that and the juxtaposition of a polluting thing and the purity of nature and all that kind of stuff. And, and I thought that was always a very interesting song and always made me think um, ab- about those topics. A- another song here is one called Riot. And we were alluding to this one earlier in the show. I'm going to play a little clip of that and talk about some of the lyrics. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Uh, amazing. I'm going to read a couple, some of the lyrics because you may not, listener, if you're not familiar with this, you may not know the, the details, but I just want to read this. But you get to the place where the real slave drivers live. It's walled off by the riot squad, aiming guns right at your head. So you turn right around and play in, right into their hands and you set your own neighborhood burning to the ground instead uh, playing right into their hands. Uh, tomorrow you're homeless, but tonight it's a blast. Other parts of the song talk about the supposed fun of, of rioting and stuff like that. But the interesting thing about this, and I always found this fascinating, was, oh, well, you know, the powers that be make it really, really difficult and painful and, and maybe dangerous for you to go and loot and riot at the where the rich people live. So most people just turn around and light their own neighborhoods on fire, and that sounds sort of absurd. But it's exactly what happened, like in the 90s riots in L.A., in the early 90s and And, stuff like that. And during, you know, you know, during last uh, summer 2020. And then you have, you know, the stuff going on in Canada with the truckers and you've got all this stuff going on that's still relevant. I mean, these lyrics still apply today. They do. Yeah. The absurdity of rioting and how little it actually does to. To get its point across, right? I mean, obviously, there's a reason for the rioting, 
but all the rioting does is destroy your own neighborhood. I mean, that's right. pretty much still applies today. I mean, these are timeless lyrics. Or it gets um, your ass beat up, you know, right, not necessarily exactly. by the police, but by other people who are just out to, you know, cause trouble. Right. And then all of the weird shit that has happened in recent years with the with the Antifa and, you know, all that stuff where right. you have just like citizens fighting against other people. They don't even know who believes what. And it's half the people are just there to cause trouble. They don't really believe in yeah. anything. Yeah, there are, there are legitimate protesters, but there are always these, you know, rioters right and and they're just there to throw throw bricks through windows and have it's like like it's a blast he says and yeah. it's it still applies it's yeah. not, not changed yeah and and the looting aspect of it and all that so i i have often thought of this song over the years and i to your point it's still very very relevant um the next song i wanted to talk about here is maybe what i think is some of their the best lyrics ever um, it's a song called Trust Your Mechanic, and I'm going to play a little bit of that and talk about some of the lyrics. Okay, so I'm going to read the lyrics here in case you didn't pick it out, but it's TV invents a disease you think you have, so you buy our drugs and soon you depend on them. Pain is in your mind, got you coming back for more again and again and again and again, going to rip you off, going to rip you up. My goodness, the first thing I thought about in recent years when I heard this song was uh, the opioid crisis and Purdue Pharmaceuticals. And if you've seen oh, yeah. that, that uh, documentary on HBO about that where... You know, crime of the century. Crime of the century, yeah. where you just Alex talk about talk. the the approach to manipulating ideas about pain and what people should perceive in pain and how they should treat it and not treat it. And I don't obviously this was years and years and years before all that, but I was just sort of wow, this is still so directly true about our society, right? It's also years and years before uh, pharmaceutical commercials, you know, were on TV twenty four seven. I mean, right. I don't have cable, but I went to visit my dad and he watches a lot of TV and we're sitting there and there's just one ad after another yeah. uh, for some drug listing the side effects at, at the end. And, and and this was so prescient because this was even, it says TV invents a disease you think you have. This was even before that was allowed. Like in the early eighties, they didn't have those ads like they That's do right. now. So it's so amazing how prescient this was for him to say these things. And, you know, when I, he, you know, t TV invents a disease you think you have, I always think of stuff like restless leg syndrome, which <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. maybe is a real thing. I, right, I'm not right. a doctor, obviously, but right. it just sounds ridiculous, right? Yeah. And so um, th that to me was always very, just still to this day, just as you said, prescient in, in every way. Some other lyrics that I think are equally amazing Um the doctor says you need surgery now, feeling good till the side effects fuck up something else. You're ensnared by the medicine man, paying up the ass again and again, going to rip you off. Yeah. And when I hear this song, I just think so much about the current state of like the insurance industry and how oh, yeah. in the U.S. people are bled dry to the day they die. You know, and like it's almost like inventions of, of policies and procedures and, and protocols 
to make sure that people don't die in dignity, people don't die, um, you know, just kind of in inevitable terminal situations. Um, it's like they're just a, completely operated and tested on and, and more medicine and more everything again and again and again until every last little dime is extracted out of them and they die anyway, inevitably, and maybe more in a more miserable way. I don't know. But that that to me is um, is pretty amazing to me. Right. So the other thing that I, the other lyric that I wanted to, to talk about here, uh, a couple things, I'm obsessed with this song, obviously, is, um, you know, trust your mechanic to mend your car, bring it in his garage, it tightens and loosens a few spare parts. One thing's fixed, another falls apart. And then the rich eat you again. The same, <laughs> the same, the same themes there. And, um, you know, the trust your mechanic to make you well. You're seeing an awful lot of him now. The quicker he makes your life falls apart, the more money you put in his pockets. Again, same themes, but it really is all one of these things where I think Jella goes off the deep end a little bit, which is, I get what he's talking about, and these are you know the the rich and people in control and and the, the uh, quote unquote elites of our society are easy targets. They always have been, but it's sort of pointless too, right? Like, I get what Jello is trying to say, but at a, at some point he's really railing against the trust that people have in society, and it's really hard to live in a society and and not have trust. Right. And and he he and others have advocated for almost like this neo uh, Emerson, Walt Whitman kind of uh, self-reliance sort of thing. Um, and these aren't new. Obviously, some of these things are, you know, 160, 170 years old and maybe even older before those gentlemen. But it's pretty hard to live in a society without modern conveniences, you know, especially if you like taking hot showers and not eating roadkill or whatever. So. I, I do think that, you know, Jello minds these things. He, 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 again and again, to quote him, to quote him. And at the end of the day, some of them are really amazing. Some of them are like, it's not that insightful. It's not that interesting. It's sort of hackneyed too. Right. Yeah. But a lot of it is prescient. That's, that's yeah. the thing. I think, I think the thing with the TV bit and the, and, you know, what you mentioned about Purdue, he's kind of, you know, what is the solution? Does the song offer any solution? I don't think so, probably. But his criticism is even more impactful today than it was at the time because of the uh, rise of big pharma. You know, uh, but well, again, what do you what do you do? Right. I mean, right. that's the the song doesn't really offer a solution. It's more of just criticizing the state of things. But it criticizes the state of things in a way that they weren't even as bad when he was <laughs> singing about them as they are now. So that's what's so amazing about that song. I think you're right to single that one out for that reason. And you could also say that somebody who is inclined to be anti-vax could use the theme oh, yeah. in this song to say, well, you shouldn't trust the man to give you a vaccine because they're just trying to make you sick and keep you addicted to something, right? Which is Yeah, bizarre. that's that's totally true. And that's why we have this phenomenon of dead Kennedy's fans who are pro-Trump. You get that. And then you also, when I first saw the song Government Flu, I'm like, uh-oh, what is, what's the government flu? COVID? You know, <laughs> it's, yeah. like, it's like in this one too. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of that balance between valid criticism and just crazy conspiracy nuthood. Yeah. You know, he teeters on the border there. 
right? And uh, that's that was my initial. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that during my stint. Um, but yeah, why don't we move on? Yeah. So another song that I think is uh, pretty important in the pantheon of Dead Kennedy songs um, is the following. It's called Terminal Preppy. I'm going to play a little clip. Brilliant. That's that musically too, the way he fits in all those those lyrics melodically and rhythmically into the verse is incredible. And I think uh, you know, it's hilarious, obviously. It's brilliant. Um, this is probably my favorite song on the record. I love the horns too, the little mocking horns. The mocking horns. Yeah, Yeah. it's really awesome. Yeah, I the lyrics are pretty clear in this one, but I think that this song was hugely uh, impressionable on me um, because I viewed a lot of the behavior that I saw, you know, subsequent to hearing this song as a young teenager and older teenager and in college and beyond through this song. Whenever I would see people doing these sorts of things, I would always look at it sort of through that, uh, you know, wry, askance sort of a DK view of this and say, are they doing this because they're having fun or are they doing this because this is their idea of what you're supposed to do if you right, say you're having right. fun? Like, like I'm not a big loud party kind of person. And whenever I would see people acting like idiots at these you know big parties, I'd be like, are you doing that because you think that's what you're supposed to do because you saw it on a movie or you saw it? And, and I just routinely thought that. And this song was a huge part of me thinking that. Right, right. right. And the, there's another line that wasn't played about, uh, you know, your life being filled with Springsteen and wine and things <laughs> yeah, yeah. to host. And, uh, in my right. centerfold world filled with Springsteen and wine. That is yeah. so funny. It is. Yeah, that is so fucking funny. It is. <laughs> I mean, and that encapsulates sort of the, uh, you know, aesthetic of the Dead Kennedys in, in, in so many ways. Um, you know, just kind of moving on to a couple other things. There's another song called Well-Paid Scientist where... You know, he he's kind of beating up people who work for the man, you know, and the, the well-paid scientist in this is really just somebody who is accepted their lot uh, as a cog in a machine and, you know, uh, trying to make it through the world. And they should be angry about that and not accepting of that, even though it buys them a decent way to make a living and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. All right. I I mean, I think this one's a little overdone. I mean, most of the well-paid scientists that I know are sort of keenly aware of their indentured servitude. And again, most people have bills to pay. And if you're not going to eat roadkill and you, you know, you know, dribble showers in in the woods from rainwater, you pretty much have to play the game of society to some degree. So I I don't think to your point, maybe interesting to point out, but not really any tangible solutions. Right. Um, Yeah. Another thing that, uh, you know, just to kind of touch on, you talked about the PMRC. 
Um, Jello has a lot of points of view, and I know you'll talk about more of this in your section. Many of them are somewhat interesting on the surface, but a lot of really what he's about is just being a contrarian. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, he uh, he talked in, in the clip we heard at the beginning of the show about the PMRC, the Parents Music Resource Council, was this ridiculous sort of way to kind of label offensive lyrics in the 80s that got a lot of people up in arms. He was on trial. You talked about that a little bit. And you wouldn't shut up about that for years, kind of in a parallels to Lenny Bruce and a lot of his stand-up not being stand-up because he was just talking about his trial. Right, right. Um, he is a big talker when he ran for mayor of San Francisco. It was a, as a lark. He didn't really seriously try to run. He doesn't really have any ideas. And one of the things I want to point out as a contrast is Joey Shea. By the way, I'm going to I'm gonna argue against that a little bit because my impression was that way. Well, no, I have in my thing, uh, I, I'll just mention it now. I was going to mention it later because my whole controversy with him coming into this was that one, right? Is he just contrarian? Is Does he actually have a point? Well, it's funny. When I was looking up, I was trying to figure out when I saw him at that 2008 uh, campaign thing. Um, I couldn't really find it, but I did find this open letter to Barack Obama after Barack Obama became president that Jello wrote in 2008. And it is one of the most coherent and intelligent things I've ever read. Like it, he basically goes over like healthcare and Guantanamo and, you know, um, uh, rendition and all this stuff that he, you know, saw the Bushes is doing and telling Obama, this is what you need to do. And he outlines it point by point. And I'll say that even though he kind of comes off as a contrarian, he, it actually, I pretty much agreed with almost everything he wrote. You know, he talks about legalization of marijuana. This is back in 2008 before it was legalized pretty much everywhere. <laughs> you know, now it is, um, or in many places in the country. But he talks about all these issues and he actually is pretty coherent. So I think sometimes that, he, that doesn't come off, but he does actually have some ideas. But yeah, it's, it's kind of a conflict with him between being absurdist and kind of attacking everyone on all sides yeah, and actually having a point. But I think at, at, at times he can be incredibly lucid. Like it's, we even saw that in the songs you criticized, right? Trust your mechanic. Half of it's like, well, what is he really trying to say here? And half of it is like, we're like, well, he's completely right. Same yeah. with the riot, right? Right. He's completely right. He was right about this, you know, decades ago. Of course there were riots in the sixties. It's nothing new, but it's also nothing that's dated. Right. I mean, his observations aren't dated in these songs. They're actually correct to a point. And then there's that point at which you're like, well, what's he what's he proposing? You know, and this 2008 open letter kind of changed my view because it was like, wow, he actually is proposing some specific platform changes that I actually agreed with. So it's kind of interesting because I think I think there's a conflict between him as a really incisive political uh, thinker. And him as kind of this absurdist wanting to just attack everything, you know? So I think they're as an agitator and just as a, um, yeah. So anyway, we can continue there. Well, I was just going to point out that like his mayoral campaign, as you were talking about, was sort of a lark. Um, Maybe, I mean, that was a long time ago too. I I did just want to point out that uh, Joey Shithead from DOA, which is probably one of the greatest names ever. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, totally. I love the punk name. Jello Mapper's a great name, but Joey Shithead's just like, fuck it, I'll just call myself Shithead. Let's <laughs> Joey Shithead. Yeah. Uh, from DOA, uh, actually yeah. ran for city council and won, you know, in, oh, in wow. Canada and British Columbia. So wow. y- you can have these sort of ideas and actually try to do something with them instead of just throwing eggs at everybody. Right, right. Right. And, the you know, Jello, I, I do think a lot of his history, you know, despite that letter, was just him screaming, you know, about Jerry Brown or screaming about Diane Feinstein or Mondale and just kind of invoking the names of people just to get a reaction, you know, from his partisan uh, crowd. And it's the same kind of garbage that the uh, right wing people do when they talk about scream Obama or they scream about Hillary Clinton or, you know, whatever it is. It's just like a shortcut for just getting people who already agree with everything you're going to say just riled up. And I, I, it's just fucked out to me. I'm well, tired, it's also his of criticisms of the left often don't like his that letter to Obama, that open letter to Obama is what he should be saying. It's much more like. Yeah, closing Guantanamo isn't enough. You have to end the uh, our torture programs or whatever, right? And so what he ends up doing is he comes up with these absurdist critiques, like comparing Walter Mondale to Motley Crue. It makes no sense. Or having Jerry Brown, you know, uh, force kids to meditate in school and wear earth shoes. It's just funny, but yeah. it doesn't actually get to the bottom of what's the problem with Jerry Brown? Is he too right wing for being a left winger, or is or is you know is he? You know, it, it's it's absurdist. It doesn't really get to the bottom of of any kind of constructive criticism. It's just like these he's lampooning them in a funny way and it's entertaining, but it doesn't actually get a message across. So it's a kind of conflict between those two things. I agree. And I struggle with that. You know, I, I appreciate what he's trying to say on some hands on, uh, on one hand. And, and on the other hand, it's like, eh, you know, it's just a little the, the techniques yeah. are a little dated and they're just I'm just tired of seeing those exploited left and right all over the place. Right, it's just, right. It's just, I'm, I'm over it. Um, lastly, before I give my final valuation here and turn it over to you, the Eagles and hatred of the Eagles. I feel compelled to say something about this. It, uh, it The Eagles are invoked by every old hipster who wants to rail against kind of the establishment rock of that time, saying that they hate the Eagles. Fine, you hate the Eagles. But 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 you don't get any credit for just saying you hate the Eagles anymore. Like there's no credit being given now for saying I hate the Eagles like the the dude did in the opening clip or, or Jello. Stop doing it. It's okay to hate the Eagles, but come up with some valid criticisms. There's plenty. But just don't say I hate the Eagles and have everyone laugh that okay you're so you're such a hipster cool guy that you hate the Eagles. Like you don't get any credit anymore for saying you hate the Eagles. So move on. And then on yes, you know look. I know a lot of the punks hate progressive rock for the reasons that you talked about earlier, but um, I'm just going to go ahead and say this to the punks who hate progressive rock. Uh, for progressive rock errs and fans, fuck you. You guys can't play your instruments at all for the most part. They know it, and they're making fun of you, the progressive rockers. You're A lot of you are just crybabies and want to scream and yell and wish, wish you could play music as good as the guys in Yes or Rush and all that. And you could still say the things that you're trying to say and actually be decent musicians. You don't have to have 40 minute songs, but just like making fun of Yes and those bands just because they're competent and they're trying to do something important from a musical point of view or an art point of view. I think that's just lame. And I know it's that that the whole punk thing was just to react to all that and just be contrarian to that. 
But I think that's tired too. So there you go. Yeah, I mean, I would argue, uh, I mean, I'll talk about this more, but I think the Dead Kennedys are one exception to that because they're actually pretty good musicians. Um, you not know, on the level of yes, though. No, no, like but yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, not even close. I mean, yeah, there, there's very few people in pl- that play that don't play jazz music or yeah. classical music that are of yes's caliber. There are some, and they're all progressive in some some extent or another. But yeah, it's pretty rare. I think that that bands are that good. You know, musicians are that good. But yeah, I, I agree with you on that sense uh, because I like both genres of music. You know, I don't uh, I don't think there's a you know, and I'm actually a huge progressive rock nerd. I think it's probably my favorite kind of music. So I would defend them and the Eagles too. I agree with you about the Eagles thing. You know, being such a tired thing. You know, it's like there's so much worse things you could like, and like, like Seals you know, and Croft for that matter, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the the Eagles, you know, person personality wise, they are jerks and all that, but you know, they they're talented. They have great harmonies, they have catchy songs, you know, they have really good songs that are memorable. I mean, what else do you do you want from them? Yeah, you know, it's I like agree. so so it's like that's the kind of shit they did and, you know, anyway. It's an easy so, target and I'm just yeah. tired of it being an easy target. We'll I we'll guess. do an Eagles episode where we go more into that, I'm sure. For sure. Um Valuation, just as a final summation here, um, I basically am long uh, on, on the Dead Kennedys, and and the reason mostly being not because I think there's going to be a huge interest in the Dead Kennedys, just that you know when all these old school punkers die off like Jello and Mick Jones and Henry Rollins and Iggy Pop, I think there's going to be a, a punk a retro punk revival, and the Dead Kennedys will get a lot of run in that as they should. So um, I say you should buy uh, some of the OG punk now for and be prepared for that in terms of financial valuation. So I will stop talking and hand it over to you. All right. So my evaluation. So going into this, I was kind of reticent because, you know, Jello kind of is part of the whole 80s and 90s kind of conspiracy a thon thing. Uh, you know, I you know, this when he came out, you know, I was definitely of the mindset that all these conspiracy theories were true, that Kennedy was assassinated by a conspiracy, that all this stuff was going on. And, um, you know, with the over the years, my opinions have changed on this stuff a lot. I think a lot of people who believe a lot of this stuff, I mean, the whole Kennedy thing's its own issue. We could go into that because I think there, there could be a case to be made for some kind of conspiracy, but almost everybody who believes that hasn't read the other side. And, and we're, as humans, we are, basically confirmation bias creatures. You know, we, right. we look for things that uh, support our opinion. I guarantee you, I could ask anybody who believes that Kennedy was assassinated by conspiracy. Have you read Gerald Posner's case closed? Have you read Vincent Bugliosi's book? I mean, he's a problematic guy, but you know, he wrote a good book on the Kennedys. Uh, have you read the Warren report? I would say almost no one would say yes. No one's read the other side. Um, and, and, you know, with all this Q bullshit that's come out and all this kind of COVID and, 5g and you know all this stuff all these conspiracies that come out i'm just fucking done with it i think almost all conspiracy theories are false and some there are some legitimate conspiracies there are um and the cia did bad things there's no doubt about it but i think this whole kind of red pilling matrix mindset has been mostly harmful and bad 
for the country and the world. And I think we're seeing that play out now. It just erodes trust in society and you can't have a society without trust, right? I think most of the time incompetence is a better explanation for why things happen in politics than conspiracies. I think conspiracies is almost giving too much credit to some of these people. Like the whole idea that Nancy Pelosi has behind some pedophilic conspiracy. I mean, I think it's just ridiculous. So I have to say all that because that's the mindset I was going in because I thought Jello was part of to blame for that. You know, the Jello, and then you get, you know, Oliver Stone and then you get X-Files and all this and then the Matrix and you get all this kind of conspiratorial thinking that nothing is real. Everything's a lie. The government always lies to you and the government does lie to you. And there are real problems with the government, but it's like not everything's this deep state, you know, conspiracy. And so I came into that thinking Jello was part of that. And actually, after reading that 2000 and letter eight letter, I thought better of it. Um, but, uh, you know, this I want to play a clip from a song here uh, from a song called I Am The Owl. And this is a song that kind of combines every conspiracy CIA theory in one song. But let's just play a bit of it now. Yeah, so what you're hearing there is a lyric about this whole, it's kind of covers COINTELPRO, this whole idea that the CIA is infiltrating these, these uh, you know, uh, rebellious groups and then causing them to riot. And this was actually something that came out during the Capitol riots, that there's this theory that Rogan and other people have pushed that there was a guy who was a plant who was getting everybody to riot. They weren't going to attack the Capitol of their own, or it wasn't Trump that was causing them to do it. It was some guy in there causing them to do it. And that's why people riot. And there could be some truth to that. I'm sure there could be, but is there any evidence? Um, so this is kind of the paranoid viewpoint Jello has. And, you know, he starts the song out with the lyrics, I am your plumber. No, I never went away. I still bug your bedrooms and pick up everything you say. And the song uh, is actually talking about the plumbers, which were Richard Nixon's, you know, uh, that was Richard Nixon's kind of stealth project to infiltrate the Democratic Party with Watergate and all, you know, all the all the kind of dirty tricks. A real right? conspiracy. And, right. And that was real. Right. That yeah. was real. And then he he goes on to talk about MK Ultra in the song, which we know now was probably true. The CIA was experimenting with LSD on people. Um, but but it's like a grab bag of everything. So it's an incredible paranoid view. And on the one hand, a lot of it is true. And on the other hand, a lot of it is that conspiracy mindset. So that's what I was kind of coming into this with. Um, But, uh, you know, I will say that it's not like he's wrong about this. You know, there are it's just kind of lumping it all together. And that song kind of lends to this conspiratorial mindset and this kind of thing we talked about with this conflict where, yes, he's politically astute. He sees things. But then is it all just a conspiracy? Is it all a grand conspiracy? Is it all the deep state? And that's what I kind of rally against. And that's kind of what I came in with this mindset of. But I will say overall, uh, you know, and like I said, California Uber Alley says clever and funny as it is, it could have been written by Karl Rove. You know, I mean, it it plays right into the hands of the Republic. Oh, the liberals want to make you do yoga and drive Volvos and eat vegetarian. <laughs> and there's all this agenda. And it's like, to me, 
it kind of doesn't really serve any purpose, even though, you know, I love it because it's funny. But on the one hand, it's like as satire, it doesn't really work in the sense of being accurate. You know, if you're going to criticize Jerry Brown, there's plenty of things to criticize other than these kind of this hippie paranoia. I mean, it's funny and it's a classic and that'll never be taken away from it. But that was kind of my mindset going into this. Um, and of course, you mentioned Terminal Preppy. You know, that's just hilarious. And, uh, you know, it's it's an absolute classic. Um, but there's another song that blew my mind with its prescience. And it's almost this is more of an accidental thing. Uh, why don't you play that clip from Forest Fire? So, dude, this actually happened. So there was a one of the fires in California was started by this hippie woman who was supposedly boiling bear urine to drink it. <laughs> As so one it's does, like, yes. I mean, this is insane. Like, Jello is basically talking about her, but yeah. this is like forty years ago. You know, it's it's yeah. nuts. It's like it's it's almost like he saw the future in some of these songs. Like, it's really crazy. Even though this song is just an absurd, kooky thing, this is actually something that happened kind of in the same way that he actually yeah. just sings about here. It's just uncanny. Like his his mind just works on a different level. I mean, it's like. Like it ends up putting together all these weird things like California Uberales and Holiday in Cambodia, Holidays in Cambodia and Terminal Preppy. These he's kind of, you know, it's it's art. It's high art what he does in a way, even though it's it touches on so much political, you kind of want it all to make sense and give a coherent message. And it really doesn't. And that's just because I think his brain works on this other visionary level. Like it's 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 really amazing what he comes up with. Um just the way he puts words together and stuff is is artful but it's it's just i was struck by this because i was listening to this album and i'm like holy shit forest fire happened in a way 40 years ago 40 years later yeah you know so it's really weird moon okay, over so marin that's, you know, has some of those themes in it too right yeah moon over marin is a really surrealistic kind of post-apocalyptic song about like someone in Marin, like walking the beaches, we didn't really play a clip from that, but you know, there's all this pollution and oil sludge, you know, kind of like the Exxon Valdez accident. There was, there was a standard oil accident in the seventies in the Bay area that was similar. And I think that's what he was singing about, but he's also singing about this kind of post-apocalyptic world where the person still jogging, you know, and they still have yeah. their wood hot tub that they rest in, but they go out and they jog in this post-apocalyptic Marin. So it's kind of this hippie dystopia thing again. Yeah. Um, but again, it's very unique uh, and visionary. But we've talked so much about the lyrics, right? Jello is such a dominant force in this band. And we talked a lot about the lyrics, but I want to talk about the music, too, because I think the music is is as innovative in a way as his lyrics. If it doesn't stand out as much, it's just because he's such a dominant presence. But, um, you know, it's a, such a combo of, you know, there's rockabilly, there's 60s garage, there's surf guitar, Italian, you know, spaghetti Western guitar. Uh, and it's loud and echoey and tinny and, and abrasive. But also technical. I mean, they play super fast. Like, play, for instance, let's play the opening to Buzz Bomb. Because this is fucking assault. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, you see how fast that is? It's like, it's like kind of like whiplash or something. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and we should mention that Dave Mustaine is hugely influenced by this band. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, and he was one of the architects of speed metal because he wrote a lot of those early Metallica songs, um, you know, that were on Kill 'Em All, which would come out just a year after this or so. Yep. And, um, you know, you can hear Bay Area the, too, right? Right. They must have seen them. And right. Stuff. Yeah. yeah, they must have been aware of this because, again, the, you hear some of that speed in Motorhead and in some of the new wave of British heavy metal, even with Iron Maiden, but you really hear it with punk rock and hardcore. And there's no doubt Metallica was influenced by hardcore. Um, even even the kind of aesthetic of no posers and, you know, dressing down, you know, not wearing the flashy MTV metal clothes, but wearing denim, you know, that's a punk rock aesthetic. And, they, you know, we didn't really talk about how that was influential, but I hear something like Buzz Bomb. I hear that first Metallica record a lot in that, even though it's a very 60s garage sound too, but it's kind of, it's so fast and heavy. And then as far as the kind of tinny, echoey, gothic sound, let's play the beginning of Halloween. You can hear the blues influence on those um, on those uh, long uh, kind of uh, whammy bar notes he plays, and then you hear the kind of discordant surf music with the weird, random you know notes played that were that are kind of uh, dissonant. And uh, yeah, it's just I think it's incredible music, and they're fast, they're tight, they're a super tight live band. If you listen to them live, I mean, they you know the the they went through a few different drummers, but the, the drummers are all incredible players. And, um, you know, they're just super tight and, and, and technical. I'd argue they're probably one of the more, along with the Bad Brains, one of the more technical uh, punk bands. Um, Fishbone, maybe. Yeah, Fishbone is kind of more eclectic, right? They're, they can yeah. play anything. They're playing ska, they're playing punk. Yeah, Fishbone, you know, obviously even Black Flag has some technical. You know, Greg Ginn became quite a good guitarist. So there's like, um, and the Minutemen were obviously more post-punk, but they you know, were really technical too. So there were, there was definitely some musicianship in punk rock. You know, it's not, yes, it's not King Crimson. It's not Rush, but these guys could really play. I think there's no doubt about that. Um, so overall, you know, I'm going to say, you know, with the conspiracy stuff, I think that's a minor quibble when you really listen to the lyrics. I think, you know, maybe the unfocused satire, I think it's worth it to have songs like California Uber Allies because they're just so it's just still entertaining to this day, you know, and, and the stuff you pointed out with the prescience of the lyrics and, you know, especially terminal preppy, how great of a satire it is. Um, and how it's, the lyrics are still hilarious. Uh, I think that they are going to resonate and, um, I'm overall a buy. And I think, uh, the music was groundbreaking, you know, it was the first hardcore and punk hasn't really gone away. It keeps coming out in various forms, like an emo and stuff, whether that's a good thing or not. I don't know. Uh, probably not. <laughs> I don't tend to like a lot of the, that kind of music, but I do think it's, it's still alive. And, you know, obviously as we see with this kind of controversy between the, the pro Trump and anti Trump DK fans, 
you know, it's it's they're still wondering about what this music means in the context of today. And the fact I think you especially made a really good case for the relevance of the lyrics. You know, something like Riot is timeless. Unfortunately, yeah. I wish it wasn't. I wish we were over those things, that kind of thing. Um, but or or trust your mechanic, you know, with the rise, rise of big pharma, but also, you know, maybe. Um, yeah, I think I think uh, overall they're still relevant. And so, you know, I have a hard time. You know, I might be kind of neutral just given the fact that it's kind of of its time too. you know, some of the some of the uh, the lyrics and the music is very of that time. But I think I'm going to slightly edge toward by on this one. Yep. I hear you. All right. And I agree. So um, cool. Let's wrap up here. Thank you for joining us for this extended look at the Dead Kennedys Plastic Surgery Disasters uh, episode 11 for the Cultural Futures Exchange. We'll catch you next time. Hang in there and have a good time out there in listener land. Catch you later.